Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, it's electric. Boogie, woogie, woogie. This is Crank High Voltage. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Crank High Voltage, which we're talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week? I got to get real with you. I had a moment of boredom, Uh-oh. craving distraction. A few days ago, I downloaded a free SimCity game onto my phone. I had no games on my phone. I decided to take a plunge. It's a nice little game and it's ruining my life. It's bad. I don't think I can do video games these days, or at least not ones like this that are designed to. The microtransaction feasts. Yeah, just hook you in and just demand your attention at all times. I'm losing sleep. I'm staying up too late. I'm falling behind on projects. It's just a mess. So my new game now is to try to beat the addiction and convince myself to delete it and walk away. What game were we talking here? It's SimCity something. It's straight ahead building cities in the old fashioned SimCity style. I don't know if it has a subtitle. I used to love the SimCity games. I can understand why you're sucked into it. But is this one of those games that try? to sucker you in with all the put your credit card in get more materials more blah 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 like the yeah. freemium ones so to speak yeah it's a free game but yeah you've quickly become frustrated i don't have enough cash to buy the supplies to grow my apartment towers and get to the next level and there's always another level and another thing that you need and a new object to craft and resources you need it's fun it's really well designed and it looks cool and it plays really good on the phone it's a top level game it's just a nightmare for me i haven't brought this up in a while but i work in the video game industry and uh, take it from me there is no game more expensive than a fucking free game. Yeah. Spend the $70 and buy a real (laughs) game for the PlayStation or the Xbox or your PC, whatever have you. You'll just be better off and happier in the long run because those free games will bleed you dry, man. Your time, your money, your energy, your attention. You're absolutely right. How are you doing? I'm heading to the old stomping grounds tomorrow. I'm going back to Queens for the day to celebrate my sister's birthday. Happy birthday, Melissa. Happy birthday, sis. Yeah. Just gonna spend the day with some old friends, have some beers, I'm sure, and some good food, some good pizza. That I can't nice. quite get where I live now. And oh boy. yeah, looking forward to it. That's pretty much all I got going on this weekend, Sunday. My plan is to recover. That sounds probably. lovely. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah, thank you. But uh, before we get into Crank High Voltage, we got to go over some movies we watched because we both have some relatively new movies to go over. We didn't bring anything from like the 80s this week. What do you got for me, Ian? I went all the way back to 2020 Netflix movie called Extraction. This was actually my second watch. I went back to it after we did a recent episode on Children of Men because it has some similarities. This is a movie starring Chris Hemsworth directed by a stunt coordinator named Sam Hargrave, who's gotten into the directing world. And so it's an action movie and man, it loves its action. It is really beautifully executed action. And we talked about with Children of Men, Quaron does this amazing continuous shot car ambush sequence that goes on for impossibly long and transitions impossibly in and out of a car while all kinds of chaos is happening. This movie, Extraction, does a version of that for 12 minutes and the action is insane. It's as though Quaron made a pure action movie and 
also was high on meth when he did it because this thing is just, <laughs> it is balls to the wall action. It's really fun. Also, it kind of contrasts with today's movie, which tries to be balls to the wall action, but it's more like answering the question, what if a 16-year-old Adam Sandler got tweaked on meth and made a pure action movie, which is not as fun. Not as I think fun. the middle ground is better. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm looking up Sam Hargrave right now. First of all, I just have to say, this is neither here nor there. This man is movie star handsome. Like he's more handsome than Chris Hemsworth. Somehow. Wow. Look him up if you have a minute, just because I am blown away by this. But <laughs> yeah, he's also an actor in his own right and a stuntman, I believe. Okay. So he's definitely familiar with how to set up and film these complicated action shots. And I really liked Extraction. I'm excited for the sequel. I think it could be a fun, almost like a throwback 80s type franchise, like Cobra or something like that. Yeah. Along those lines. No, I'm looking forward to it too. I think Sam Hargrave's got a big future in front of him, especially with that jawline. Man, he could do it, whatever he wants. Oh, you looked him up? Yeah. Yeah, dude. I feel like he got his break by just being like Chris Evans's more handsome stunt double. It looks, yeah. Good grief, man. Sorry, I'm distracted now. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, extraction rules. No argument here. And the children of men comparison is apt. So my movie for show and tell this week is a new one. Just hit streaming. Hit HBO Max actually a couple days ago. It's one that I really wanted to see in theaters, but just couldn't find the time, unfortunately. But it actually did a good bit of business in theaters, so we won't be covering it here, I think. Oh, cool. It was a bit of a sleeper hit. I saw the menu. Finally. We've been talking <laughs> this movie up for <laughs> yeah, months. I feel it because it was Alexander Payne was originally going to direct it. Every actor and actress we've had on, Nicholas Holt, Anya Taylor-Joy, Hong Chow, yep. they were all in this movie. We kept bringing it up. And so every time we do an episode, we'd be like, oh, and they're going to be in the menu <laughs> coming up in a couple months. So I did get to see it. Listeners who are not familiar, I'm a big, I don't want to say foodie, I hate that term, and that term kind right. of gets skewered in the movie. But you know, I hosted a Top Chef podcast. So I'm like this world of fine dining and kind of celebrity chefs is something I'm very entrenched in. Right. And the movie does a great job of skewering that world. And some of its targets are only like slightly exaggerated. Okay. If you actually follow some of this stuff, like the pretentiousness of the language used and just the meticulousness that goes into presenting the dish and how they instruct you to eat it all, it all seems very like stuffy. It's barely exaggerated. But then of course the movie takes a turn. That's all I'm going to say now. Okay. It's, it's very funny at times, sometimes ridiculous, but it knows it's like pulpy, but also is saying something about class and the service industry and sexism. Interesting. Um, really fun movie. I highly recommend it. And just wanted to shout out John Leguizamo because this guy's been doing everything lately and he turns in like a great little performance in this. Great supporting cast, small cast, obviously, cool. but he's just been popping up everywhere. He was in Violent Night, which I talked about on Show and Tell last week, and now he's in uh, The Menu. He's killing it. I watched Violent Night at your recommendation, and he's, for me, was the highlight of that movie. Now, Harbor is great. He's an awesome Santa, but for me, Leguizamo was my favorite part of that movie. Just going balls to the wall, crazy dude who hates Christmas. Uh, yeah, he was great in it. But it, like somehow he kept it real. He's a great actor. Yeah, he seems to be having a moment, which I'm happy about because I've always been a fan of his stuff, and he's doing a little more. More dramatic stuff. I would hesitate to call Violent Night dramatic, but like you said, he's playing it more or less straight, pretty grounded throughout. So I think his resurgence started when we shouted him out. Summer of Sam. Summer of Sam. Go back and listen to that episode. He was great in that. Good actor. Super underrated movie. Yeah. That movie's pretty good and he's great in it. But yeah. All right. So I need to do some housekeeping here. I said at the end of last episode that I was excited about Crank High Voltage because I <laughs> had watched it when I was younger and enjoyed it. And I was prone to head injuries in my 20s. <laughs> oh, my early 20s. And I think maybe some of that was happening at the time because I fucking hate this movie. Some of my goodwill might have just been confusing it with the original Crank, which I still think is a much better, more fun time at the movies. But this movie is bad and ugly and mean-spirited and gross. Yes. I'm sorry to say I totally agree with you. I'm glad to hear you set the record straight on your past impression of this movie, which was either confused or just a bad take. But it's time to set things straight. This movie is bad. Nobody has bad movie takes in their early 20s, Ian. That's <laughs> unheard of. Come on. Yeah. I know. I'm sorry that yeah. happened to you. It's a strange thing to happen. But look where you are now. You're getting a chance to talk yeah. about it. This is going to be one of those episodes, 
folks. There's episodes where we just have fun making fun of the movie. And then there's other episodes where we're going to get mad in places. And this is one of those movies that makes you mad in a few spots because it's just ugly for reasons it doesn't need to be. So it's going to call back our Adam Sandler anger with That's My Boy and a couple other moments like that in the pod where we were like, why the fuck did you do that? Stop it. I don't think this movie is quite as bad as That's My Boy. But you made this comparison when we were chatting off air to the Boondock Saints. And I feel like that's very apt. Yes. It's got a very similar tone. You could see Neville Dean and Taylor and Troy Duffy just uh, getting belligerently drunk and like harassing waitresses together based on the humor or what they intended to be humor in those two movies. But what was your relationship with the Crank franchise, if you had any? Had you seen the first one ever? Did you remember the movies when they were being marketed? I was aware of the franchise and I think I saw part of the first one, but I can't recall enough of it to make me think that I sat down and watched the whole thing. And at that time, I wasn't turned off by it. Apparently, whatever I saw, I filed that in the kind of like, oh, I dig Jason Statham and this might have been a fun, crazy action movie. And like you said, that one was probably a better movie than this one. This one just kind of missed me entirely. So I came into this movie and the whole franchise pretty much with a cold start this week. A lot of the problems with this movie will become very obvious once we start going through the story because it's made in a very scattershot, slapdash way, which is surprising considering the size of the budget it had in a $20 million budget, which was $8 million more than the first Crank had, which was a much tighter, felt more plotted out, better conceived, I guess. Like yeah. this movie just feels like they ran around Los Angeles looking for people to harass and Jason <laughs> exactly. Statham to film. Exactly. But I mean, there's a bunch of reasons for that because half this action is literally just running on the street and someone points across the street and they run over there and they do a scene over there. It looks like guerrilla filmmaking, even though it has a $20 million budget. On top of that, most of the background actors or the bit parts are just clearly not actors. And some of them are famous friends of the filmmakers. And we'll go through that list of people that we could identify. But like that also helps it look like guerrilla filmmaking. It looks like, oh, they got some buddies to stand around and play gang members or whatever they are. You do not see the budget, except in the face of Jason Statham, who had made some hit movies by this point and started to probably command a bigger salary. He had, but not as many as you might think. I feel like his real career resurgence, we'll talk about it more at the end of the episode, came about in like 2010. He was still doing one small hit, one big flop okay. back and forth at this time in his career. And I'm curious to get your take on this movie, particularly as a Los Angeles native, if this is a fair and dignified okay. portrayal of your city. It's not <laughs> dignified at all, but it, I like seeing the city. Even like its s- gross yellow filter? Yeah. We'll talk about the look of the film. It's not very appealing, but it is fun to see just city streets. And you do see some city streets that are super well-known, like the movie starts out at the end of the previous movie on the block of the financial district in downtown LA that most people know from every other car commercial and lots of movies, Transformers movies, super familiar. I worked in two different buildings in downtown LA and both of them were half a block from where Jason Statham falls and lands from his helicopter. So I know that corner pretty well. That's fun to see. But then there's a, a bunch of it in South LA, in parts of LA that don't always get on. on Inglewood, I know, was a big filming yeah. location. Yeah. yeah. So it definitely has a fun LA flavor to it. Yeah. You get the sense they didn't spend much time on set dressing. Uh, no. that's a They're just like, that's a cool bar over there. Hey, go give the guy 50 bucks and tell him we're going to shoot exterior for 10 minutes. I know Brian Taylor, I believe, is an LA native as well. Mark Neville okay. is from Watertown, New York, which is like where Dana oh. Mora is, I think. He's from the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. But there is like a native's eye for location scouting in this movie. It's one of the few praiseworthy things I can say about it. Yep. Do you want to get into the making of this movie such as it is? Yeah. Let's figure out how this thing happened. All right. In 2003, filmmaking duo Mark Neveldine and Brian Taylor wrote a script for a movie they also planned to direct called Crank, about a hitman who is poisoned and must keep his adrenaline pumping in order to stave off death. 
Hilariously, the role was written with Johnny Knoxville in mind. Eventually filmed with a reliable British action star Jason Statham in the lead as Chev Chelios, Crank was eventually released in September of 2006 and proved to be something of a sleeper hit, grossing $43 million on a $12 million budget. Lionsgate, the studio that had released the original, quickly approached Neville Dean and Taylor with the idea of making a sequel, which Neville Dean and Taylor originally declined as they felt the ending of the first movie definitively killed Chelios. What's next when you already killed your hero? Kill the franchise. They relented somewhat, agreeing to write the movie but not direct it. However, after cramming the script full of every outrageous, offensive, and disgusting thing they could think of, the duo fell in love with it and was on board to direct it. With Statham and many of the supporting cast ready to return, the film was given a $20 million budget and filmed over only 31 days in Los Angeles between April 28th and June 9th, 2008. You could say they cranked it out. The filming was done in the same fast and dirty style as the original, using prosumer high-def camcorders that afforded the directors more mobility and access to tighter locations. Neville Dean and Taylor seemingly called every famous person they ever came across to cameo in the film, and a release date was set for April 17th, 2009. Reviews for the movie were nearly identical to the original, as the first one sits at 61% on Rotten Tomatoes and the sequel settled at 64%, but the movie failed to catch on with audiences, opening in sixth place with $6.9 million, an appropriately juvenile number for this movie. Nice. It would drop 62% in its second week to 10th place with only $2.6 million and would continue to fade from there. The movie cost $8 million more than the original and would leave theaters making $9 million less, securing its place as a box office flop and putting any plans for a third movie temporarily on ice. Nice. It does continue to have a sizable fan base though and rumors of a third one continue to persist. So I assumed that Neville Dean and Taylor had stopped working together because they had a falling out because they seem like deeply unpleasant people. But apparently that's not the case. They just decided to oh. work on separate things for a while. They did work together after this movie, but they haven't made a film together in over a decade now. Well, I, I thank them for that. That's something yeah. nice that they did for us. It's not like the rest of their filmography is full of hidden gems and this one was just a dud. We'll talk about their career in a little more depth later on. But yeah, we didn't lose any great visionaries when they, no. when they split up their team. They're not the fucking Cohen brothers. Not the Coens, not the Russos. Not even the Russos, not the Wachowskis. <laughs> no, maybe the Duffy brothers. It's the best comparison. <laughs> Weren't the Duffy? Duffer Brothers are real people. Oh yeah, the Duffer Brothers too. That's confusing. I forgot. Who about are the Duffer? That. What did they do? Oh no, now we got to look it up. Oh, they're the Stranger Things guys. Oh. Oh, and they made Wayward Pines. I actually really liked Wayward Pines. That was that Matt Dillon, M Night Shyamalan type movie, or it was a series. I enjoyed that show. All right. um, they're climbing the list. This is good podcasting. Me just reading their Wikipedia. So speaking of Neville Dean and Taylor, you said in your piece there they wrote the script. They're like, oh, we're just going to write the script because we don't have time to direct another crazy slam bang movie. And then they fell in love with what they wrote, so they had to direct it and. My assessment after seeing this movie is the great writing achievement that they were able to pull off in the second movie was incorporating Cockney rhyming slang into the character of Chev <laughs> Chelios, which, as you said, was written for an American the first time. They were really bombed. Uh, did you have that in your notes or did I pick that up somewhere else? It's out there about this movie if you look up, yeah. you know, the trivia or the Wikipedia or whatever. Yeah. That, yeah, they were bummed they couldn't incorporate Cockney rhyming slang into the first <laughs> script. Why couldn't you just let him improvise that in the first one? I don't get why that's such a big deal. What it seems like it would have been an easy ad. <laughs> Not exactly breaking your budget. But in this movie, you get to hear him say like, Oi, I'm looking for the bloke who took me strawberry tart. And then they have to put text on the screen to explain what that means. <laughs> yeah, that's his heart for anyone who doesn't speak fluent Cockney. They're just the regurgitating bits from Austin Powers and Goldmember now, which is good times. I mean, Statham's fine in this type of role. I've enjoyed him as a slam bang action star. Like this cast isn't uniformly bad or anything. It's not like they got shit actors, except, you know, no. some shit people in roles, but they do right. decent jobs. This movie just 
just has no no heart for one thing, which, and I say this, I'm well aware that if Neville Dean and Taylor heard any of this criticism, they would just point at us and be like, you're not the target audience for this movie. And that's fine, but we're the ones talking about it. It is a movie where you watch it and you watch the actors and you think about the filmmakers behind the camera and you just constantly ask yourself, what were they thinking? What did the filmmakers think they were doing when this scene that was so fun? And how'd they get the actors on board? Because the actors are pretty committed, like especially Jason Statham and Amy Smart in the lead roles have to do some fucked up shit with each other or separately. And they had to really buy into it. You're like, oh, they're so they go for it's, it. Yeah, yeah, it's not one of those movies where you see it in their eyes that like their heart's not in it. They bought in and they sell it the best they can on the screen and they go hard. I could see it being a fun set to be on maybe, but it doesn't make the end product any more enjoyable. It's a pretty funny cast. Everyone seems to have a good sense of humor and the filmmakers clearly didn't take themselves too seriously. So I can understand having fun while making it, but the end product is not fun to consume. Fun. You want to walk through the story? Yeah. Let's jump in and tell people what the heck happens in this movie. Let's get it. There's a tough guy, hitman named Chev Chelios, played by Jason Statham. After the events of a previous movie, Chev almost dies when he and a Mexican mobster fall out of a helicopter. But Chev's former allies in the Chinese triad crime syndicate scrape him off the street and take him into surgery. Except they're not trying to help Chelios, but to steal his famously strong heart and replace it with an artificial heart powered by a chintzy little battery. Now Chelios is roaming the streets of LA trying to chase down Johnny Vang, the gangster who ran out of the operating room with a little padlocked cooler. Chev calls his friend Doc, played by Dwight Yoakam, who informs him of the need to keep his battery going or he'll die within an hour. So Chev starts trying to charge himself with random wacky stuff like jumper cables. Then he tracks Vang to a brothel where he rescues a prostitute named Rhea, played by Bai Ling, from an abusive customer. Rhea declares Chev her savior and tells him to look for Vang at a nearby strip club. At the club, Chev is surprised to find his ex-girlfriend Eve, played by Amy Smart, working as a stripper. Vang escapes from the club while Chev has to fight off an attack by a Mexican gangster named Chico, whose big boss, El Uron, aka the Ferret, wants Chelios dead. I love that you called out Chelios' famously strong heart, like he's the fucking Grinch on December 26th. <laughs> yes. Screw three, three sizes. Yeah, this movie is right off the bat, pretty insane, bludgeoning you over the head. It opens with like a video game action sequence, uh-huh. recreation of the end of the first movie, which gave me some Scott Pilgrim vibes that unfortunately yes. did not carry through. <laughs> yeah, not the same warm, joyful spirit as Scott Pilgrim, but yeah, there's a video game vibe to this whole movie. And if once, if you internalize that, you see that most of the action is sort of a video game simulation. And like an 8-bit one, not like a contemporary video game, but like this old school sort of manic energy of a video game. And the music carries that through too. There's some like ultra high speed stuff that would sound suitable in an old school video game. Yeah. If you ran it through a MIDI keyboard, it would be right at home. I do appreciate that the movie gives no attempt to explain how Chev survives this fucking fall out of a helicopter. They just barely remark upon it at all. But I was confused because I thought the movie takes place in Los Angeles, but based on the distinctive yellowish hue that the film uses, we must be in Mexico. Mexico during an episode of Breaking Bad. Yeah, that, that's was, true. that was always the telltale sign that we were in Mexico <laughs> during Breaking Bad. Everything was tinted yellow for some reason. It's uh, kind of like that. And you don't know in this movie whether that was on purpose or that was just the closest they could get to natural colors. Because like you said, they were using some cheap equipment to film this movie. Yeah, I don't think the lighting was done painstakingly or anything like that. They shot hundreds of hours of footage in 31 days, apparently. I think 280 hours of footage they had for this movie when it was in the can. So they weren't painstakingly setting up every shot. No, they were supposedly recording with these prosumer video cameras 
cameras, which if you've ever done any video, they don't look good. It's because at a certain point, everyone transitioned to using DSLRs and now mirrorless cameras, and they look a thousand times better than traditional camcorder cameras. I know you mentioned you started watching this on your iPhone and still looked like shit. Uh, I just want to point out that Steven Soderbergh has shot several movies on iPhones that look better than this. Like the equipment does not make the movie. They could have made a good looking movie with those cameras, probably if they gave a shit. Yeah. Their point was like one of the two filmmakers is a rollerblader. And so he was getting half the shots by strapping on his blades and just scooting around. They Um, made a brand new rig for this movie, I guess, that was designed to be used with rollerblades. Oh, fun. Good for them. But yeah, yeah, even on my little iPhone, I was getting motion sickness. I couldn't imagine sitting in a theater with the 20 foot high screen and having the camera whip around as much as it does in this movie. It is a queasy feeling. Nobody else could either. That's why we're covering it on this podcast. (laughs) It's not. Couldn't deal with it. So they peel Chelios off the pavement and right to like a dirty hotel room, start cutting his heart out, which is not, I'm not a fan of surgery violence, but this was almost cartoonish to the point of not being, it's just not realistic in any way. And it's not making an attempt to be. No. So it didn't bother me in that same way. It's bloody. The little heart that they pull out is actually looks like a real heart. But like the way they treat it is definitely comical. And Johnny Vang is ashing in his chest cavity. He spits in his chest cavity at one point, which is just upsetting. Setting the tone for the movie. Yeah. Johnny Vang, he's a real bastard. But luckily he is like an NPC, just walks around Los Angeles all day and happens to be wherever (laughs) Chef Chelios is at any given moment, or at least a couple blocks away. Like it never takes him long to find him. There's always somebody around that you can ask, where do I find Johnny Vang next? And they point and the camera whips over. Oh, there, strip club. That's where we're headed next. This is just like four block stretch this movie takes place on until they get to Catalina is just like strip clubs and bars and trap houses. and brothels, yeah. Not a great representation of Los Angeles, but I've never been, so what do I know? It's the seedy side. And then we get introduced to Doc, Doc Miles, played by Dwight Yoko (laughs) for some reason. Was he in the first one too? I assume he was. He was. Yeah, yeah, he's he's just about everyone. There's not many new characters in this movie. Doc Miles played by Dwight Yoakam. Just like, did he audition for this part or did they write it like, we want Dwight Yoakam? I can't put it together how this came to be. We'll have to look up his career maybe because he did a couple things where he became like a legit dramatic actor. And then I think by this time he was too legit to be doing this. There was a point where he had to transition from singer to actor and you might take some weird roles. I don't think that explains this. Yeah, I think he got seriously into acting in the early 90s. Okay. I'm looking through his filmography right now. Like he did some stuff. He was in Sling Blade. He yes, was in he was Panic really Room. Okay. Yeah. So he wasn't like stunt casting, I guess, at this point in time. No. He was a legit actor. And he plays the part pretty well, even though it's a despicable character at times. Yeah. It's a gross character. He's a sleazy doctor and he has to do all this unsavory stuff. Not like big things like cutting out people's hearts, but just like the way he treats his girlfriend and the shit he says. But like he pulls it off better than most people would. At one point he drops the line, is Doc Miles going to have to choke a bitch? Uh, yeah. Which was not my favorite. No, but at least he accentuated the irony of himself saying that. Some of the other offensive lines get said more straight-faced and they're more offensive for that reason. You know, and I was trying to figure out, because a lot of the offensive lines that are said pretty straight come from Statham. Yeah. And that was direction, apparently. Okay. He was not confident in his comedic abilities at this point in his career. So Neville Dean and Taylor, or at least on the first movie, and I assume they told him to keep to the same ethos on this one. They just told him, just play it straight. Don't apply any humor or irony to anything you say. Okay. Like, let the content be funny on its own, but they just forgot to write funny lines. Yeah. And jokes. So it didn't work. They didn't know that just like dropping slurs isn't funny. It's actually one of the hardest things in the world to make funny because you're fighting such an uphill battle and they weren't ready to win that one. This is real 1997 ass humor. Like everything about this movie screams the late 90s, except it was 12 years too late. Yeah. It's another thing that gets you into the headspace of the filmmakers. Okay. This is where they're at. We've moved on. Unfortunately, they're dragging us back. We'll get to some of those terrible 
jokes in the second act. Um, well, there's some in the first one. We don't have to wait. We got oh, Bai okay. Ling showing up here in one of the most upsetting screen roles. And she, like, it's a tough thing to talk about, but like, Bai Ling was going through some shit at this point in her life. She was having like a real mental health crisis and like substance abuse problems. Oh, okay. And it feels almost exploitative to put her in this movie in this role. And that's not always something that the filmmakers are privy to or that they necessarily have a responsibility to police, but it was pretty public, yeah. Okay, which kind of makes me feel some kind of way about her character and performance in this movie being kind of a one note joke that like she's Asian, she's got a real thick accent and also she's a hooker. And she's just a crazy dope. It's a pretty demeaning kind of character. And I know what you mean. You can feel on one side, like she made the choices, play that character. And it's a paying job, which might be important at that point in someone's life too, but it just feels gross. Yeah, it's not fun. Unfortunately, she's a likable actor, but it's not fun to see her in this role, really. I, I longed for her scenes in Wild Wild West, which I never <laughs> thought I would say. That was 10 years earlier, more or less. Okay. Wild Wild West was 99 or 2000. And then this movie has a real problem with sex work because Bai Ling plays a prostitute and they are very dismissive of her, almost to like a hateful degree. She gets hit by cars, beat yep. up by her Johns, by her pimps. Even like Chelios is very mean to her, even though he saves her life at some point. Like she's just clearly a punching bag for the entire movie. And then we get to the strip club and more of the same. The strippers are just abused, shot. One of them gets shot through her implants in one of the most unnecessarily gross and ugly scenes I've ever seen in a movie. It's not just if you're picturing this and you don't want to watch it to see what we're talking about. It's not like an explosive gross. The camera pans over to her and she has some bullet holes in her chest and then her implants quickly leak out and shrivel up, which is as gross as anything needs to be that we would want to see on screen or that we would not want to see on screen, but just to not let people's heads go even further than it is. It's terrible. And the women are, like you said, punching bags is a good, they're just victimized throughout. Because I thought for a minute, the top of the brothel scene, Chelios shakes the place up, causes everyone to start fleeing out of this building. And the first few women that run out of this brothel have tops on. And I thought for a second, I'm like, oh, that was an opportunity that they could have been more salacious. Maybe the movie's going to show some restraint. It's going to be a little decent. No, it took another 30 seconds. And every other woman, when there's a possible chance for it, they're stripped naked, at least to the waist. And then at the end of every scene, a gunfight breaks out and the naked bystanding women are just full of bullet holes. Like that's a mm -hmm. fun entertainment for these filmmakers to show. Oh no, look what happened. They shot all the naked women again. And it's depressing when I say it out loud. Yeah. And then I believe it's in the second act, but there's a protest of porn stars going on at another time. And unfortunately, like their spokesperson is Ron Jeremy, which if you need to hear our thoughts about Ron Jeremy, you can go back and listen to the Boon.Saints episode. But there again, who cast Ron Jeremy in these fucking roles? We've got Troy Duffy and Neville Dean and Taylor, <laughs> yeah. real brethren. Unfortunately, he's their spokesperson and forever fuck Ron Jeremy. Yeah. But there's a whole bevy of adult actors there, some real ones and some that I assume are just cast as extras, but it paints them as just complete idiots as well. Yeah. Like, I guess it's trying to empower them. They're staging a labor strike for better pay, but they end up coming off really dumb. And, horny. And a lot of people are horny in this movie for no discernible reason, too. <laughs> that's a good point. They just have a horn knob and they just turn up the hornness. That's what I've got for the first act. Should we move on to the second act where more hijinks ensue? Well, let's see what ensues. Leaving the strip club, Chelios fights with some cops, gets tasered, steals a cop car with Eve in the back, and heads for the horse racetrack Hollywood Park to continue to look for Vang. But along the way, there's more chaos, and Chev and Eve get separated. After shocking himself with a dog collar and falling into more trouble, Chev gets an unexpected rescue from a character named Venus, played by Efren Ramirez, the sibling of an ally from the previous movie. By the time Chev and Eve meet up at Hollywood Park, his battery is low, so he recharges it by having strenuous sex with Eve in public, like they did in the previous movie. Leaving the racetrack, Chelios is captured by Chinese mob boss Don Kim. The two men had spared each other's lives in the previous movie. This time, Kim wants to turn Chelios over to the man who stole his heart, a Chinese mob boss named 
Poondong, played by David Carradine, in one of his final film roles, I might add. So Chelios shoots Kim and all his men. Then Chelios finally catches up to Vang and corners him at an electrical plant. Chelios defeats Vang in a surreal kaiju-style battle, but then learns that this whole time his heart wasn't in Vang's cooler. It had actually already been transplanted into Poondong before the whole chase began. In his moment of disappointment, Chelios is knocked out and captured by Chico. Where do we begin? Just, I want to point out how many times you had to explain things in this movie by saying, like in the previous movie this happened, which you, diligent podcaster that you are, had to go and, I know this is a loaded phrase now, but do your own research and (laughs) kind of figure this shit out for yourself because the movie makes no attempt to explain any of this to you, really. No, I thought I was going to be able to watch this movie as a standalone because like I said, whatever part I had seen of the original, I didn't remember. So I'm like, you know what? I'm coming into this blind. I'm going to be Joe, average theater goer and just see if I can appreciate this movie on its own. And it didn't make a lot of sense, but it didn't matter because it was moving so fast and spilling so much blood. And then I tried to write down what happened in it. And I'm like, wait a minute, is this supposed to connect to something? And I started to get these clues and I ended up having to study the various synopses of the original movie that I found online in order to extract all the connections. And then I realized this whole movie is just callbacks to like, hey, remember in the first movie, there was that guy, this is that guy's brother. And I go, but yeah, but why? But what does he care about? What is he into? Nothing. He just, that's his brother. See, he looks the same. And it's just one after another of those things. And like, yep. yeah, I mean, they tie in plot wise. Like, okay, he saved his life in the first movie. In this movie, he doesn't. But like, despite the fact they're tied in together, I'm referring to Don Kim, the mob boss who you just mentioned. They have a real tie in that could have some meaning where the characters felt a way about each other and wrestled with that. But they don't wrestle with it. They just point to it and then they move on. Yeah. And Neville Dean Taylor said something interesting. They were like, once we got working on the script, we realized it's so much easier to write than the first one was because we don't have to spend any time setting up the world or the characters or like the tone of the movie, the kind of visual language of the movie, because we did it already. It was like, no, man, that's a different movie. You can't do that. You can't just ignore all that stuff because you already made one. You still need to catch people up. <laughs> yeah, really thin on the setup. And it's like some of those things you can take over. It's like, okay, we know the characters, but what does it mean to know the character? It's not to know their face and their costume size so that wardrobe can outfit them. It's like to know what they want and to be able to then shorthand or bootstrap you into some some new thing that touches on the characters' wants and problems and needs and no. foibles. But like there's there, none there, of that. It's just there like, is none of that. There's none of that in this movie. We don't learn what anybody really wants to get out of any of this, except no. revenge to some degree. Nobody gets a character arc. There's no development of any of these characters. Like Chev Chelios is not even really a character. He's just like a blunt object, a catalyst. He's like a pinball that they shot off in Los Angeles yeah. and then followed around with a camera as he bounces off various people and buildings <laughs> and vehicles, just blowing it all up. That is a very apt description. He's very much like a video game character. And maybe that's the height of their ambition for this. The thing is, he has less characterization than the heroes of Grand Theft Auto or Driver or any one of those sort of like violent city oh, Driver? That's a throwback. Yeah, I don't know. That's, like that's my, a good game. I like that game. <laughs> my knowledge is limited. I have a couple things in the bank there, but like there's less character development than a AAA video game. Absolutely. And we're not trying to shit on Statham because I think he's doing the part as written and as directed, but there are lots of people in this movie that I've enjoyed and other stuff that I, I thought I would enjoy here. Amy Smart is an actress I really like. And while we're talking about her, by the way, that's our Justified Crossover of the Week. Justified Crossover of the Week. Oh, damn. First one we've had in a couple weeks. She was a girlfriend of the main character, Raylan Givens, and a social worker on season five of Justified, the worst season, but she was good in it, Allison Brander. And she's Eve in this movie, and she does a good job with the character. But I wish she didn't have to be in this movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah, she's an appealing actor. I feel weird saying that because I feel like, am I only saying that because I was ogling her the whole time? Like, her top 
top is off in half the movie. And it's not really like she's got pasties and a little bit of clothing on. But yeah, the movie is treating her as an object for the majority of it. If When she is wearing clothes, it's like a very short cocktail dress. She's not really given much agency. She's a little bit more than a damsel in distress, but not often. She still no. needs quite a bit of rescuing. But then guys like Efren Ramirez, he's another appealing actor. Yeah. You know, Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. Clifton Collins is in this movie. Oh. What are you doing, man? <laughs> Even Corey Haim pops up. I wouldn't say Corey Haim's an appealing actor to me, but he's in this and he's a name I know. Yeah. And you mentioned David Carradine. Do we talk about him? That's a fucking train wreck. Poondong in full Asian offensive makeup and accent. Just like you said, is one of his final roles. And why do this to this man? He might have like volunteered. David Carradine was a weird guy. I mean, I believe he was pretty weird, but the guy spent 40 years living down his first mistake early in his career. He signed up for the TV show Kung Fu. He played a Chinese character. Very fraught, very contentious episode in American television. And he's about to retire from acting. And it's like, hey, let's get him to do that thing again. And this time with more offensive makeup and just a really gross character that almost doesn't say anything, but just grins and giggles. Leers. Yeah. Leers. Very leering is the word that comes to mind. And then to give him that offensive name. So rough. Not a fan. I don't know how much more (laughs) I could say about it, but I don't think any Poondong footage made it into his in memoriam uh, when he passed. Let's hope they had the good sense to pretend this movie didn't exist. So I guess, like you said, he doesn't really have many lines, so his role could be classified as a cameo. It's almost a cameo, yeah. One of dozens, you could say. So there's quite a few in this section. We get Danny Lohner, who is a guitarist for Nine Inch Nails, most notably. Okay. And Maynard James Keenan of Tool, playing a gay couple at the park who have a shock collar on their dog, and Maynard is just unnecessarily shocking his dog over and over again. So then Statham, of course, puts it on and recharges his heart using it. I thought that was one of the few scenes that I found funny. It at least was like a diversion. It was awkward. I was turned off by Statham's doggish response to being shocked, but that was the joke of that scene, that he's kind of started sparking. There's real jokes in it, at least. Yeah, that's a good, that's something to give him credit for. There's a premise and a joke and they try to execute it. And then they actually, that through line of jokes that are actually not executed too terribly continues at the racetrack when we get our next big rock star cameo with Chester Bennington, RIP of Lincoln Park fame, is just a spectator at the dog park who Chelios tries rubbing up on to generate some static electricity, which, I mean, I find the whole static electricity bit a little silly because like how much are you really generating with this type of, uh, but at least it's like we're saying, they're trying. The jokes aren't just a look at women getting shot. It's an actual attempt at real humor. But I mean, don't think that we like these things. I know you were not a fan of rubbing up on the old lady, which is where he goes after striking out with Chester. What bothered me about that is then the old lady goes on the news and is saying all these racy things. Isn't it hilarious when an old lady says racy things? Like he made me his hot little slut. Oh, she's old and she's talking about sex. Isn't that fucking hilarious? That joke was old as shit 10 years before this movie came out. You know, like (laughs) Betty White was doing that shit in Lake Placid and it's just so fucking rote and played out by the time this movie came out. I could not even muster a smirk at it. No, and it's not a good version of it either. So it has no chance of winning you back over when it's that far behind the curve. Talking about 90s jokes, we glossed over Efren Ramirez because the main joke of his character is painful to talk about. Are you talking about his sexuality or his disorder? His disorder. He has full body Tourette's, which he shakes occasionally. Like he has spasms. Yeah. That's the joke. That's the joke. It's funny. And okay. he, they fall off his moped because he has a little spasm and he lets one of the bad guys go because he has a spasm in the middle of trying to face him down. But that's not all. He's also a collection of offensive gay stereotypes at times. That's true. So they didn't stop with one offensive thing. They're like, let's pile it on. Make sure we catch everybody with this movie. So then, <laughs> much like in the first movie, Amy Smart and Jason Statham have very public sex, this time in the middle of a horse race, in the middle of the horse track. Yeah. This scene worked for me only because it goes on so long. It does that 
that thing where it stops being funny and then starts being funny again. Like the seventh time they changed positions, I was like, all right, this is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's stopping that. It's super, I called it strenuous. It's athletic. They're jumping around and it's pushing the boundaries of the sexuality that they're showing on screen where they fake you out. They make you think that the actors are actually naked because they do some blocky video over their genitals so that you can't see anything. I hope to God they were fully covered up under those digital blocks. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> they weren't actually needed in this movie because yeah, it's really racy and it's just dumb how hard they're pushing it. And then at the moment of climax, a jockey jumps his horse over them because as we said, they're lying in the dirt of the Hollywood Park racetrack and Eve gets a close-up look at the undercarriage of a horse. There's a big old horse cock. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this tour. But we have no sponsors. We're not beholden to any corporate overlords. I just love that you had to type horse cock in our synopsis. It was, <laughs> I don't know how I felt about that. In another movie where you weren't already so beaten down, that might have been just the kind of over the top that you would actually laugh at and go, oh my God, they went there. But this movie tries so hard to go there from the first minute to the last minute that you're tired of it. And so it was hard at this point in the movie to get it was hard. out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the horse cock, it was hard. They didn't got those horses from Fenton's horse ranch. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> no, no, no this not. is the kind of horse that'll ruin your marriage. And then just, it's kind of going over the same territory again, but like more scenes we didn't need. I'm glad you called this out. The scene where Chico gets his nipples cut off in a very like long and slow shot. Yeah, real slow. Clifton Collins. Just, what's he doing, man? Why are you doing this, Clifton Collins? Is his character, wait, what's his character called? The ferret. Oh, yeah, 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 Heron, the ferret. He says Heron sometimes just so to help us understand what he's saying, but I think the H should be properly silent. Is he holding the knife or is he making Chico cut off his own nipples? I, I think he's making Chico cut off his own nipples, which is worse. And it's both of them and it's one at a time and it's drawn out. And I'm like, yeah, it goes on is, a really long time. This and the deflating boobs was like, this is a movie about chest horror and it's, yeah. it was upsetting. We love boobs. We don't want to see them hurt. No, don't shoot boobs. holes in them. Don't cut the nipples off. Just leave them. All right. So then there were two scenes in the section, by the way, we have to make a note here because we both had this feeling and we'd be remiss if we didn't bring it up. But every time I checked how much time was left in this movie. I was like, there's got to be like 20 minutes left. And then I would look and there'd be like 47 minutes left somehow. <laughs> yeah. This is the longest 96 minute movie ever fucking made. It's so crazy. It happened to me twice. It happened to me on both times watching it where I'm like, damn, it's been going for a long time. I really must be making progress through this movie. And I guess it helped that both of us couldn't wait for it to be over. So we're like, oh man, I've endured a lot. Let me check the time. I must be almost done. And it's like wrong. There's an hour left. It's like that thing when you're in the middle of a boring work day and you're like, I'm not going to check the time. I'm going to wait. Because I know if I wait, then when I check it, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Like I checked, it was 46 minutes left. I watched it for half an hour, checked again. There was 43 minutes left. <laughs> How does that math add up? It doesn't make it's, sense. It is a cursed movie in that way. It's because the pace is high. So you feel like you've endured a lot in a short time. And yet the movie is lazy and it likes to, there's actually fat to be trimmed. I think on the edit, there's scenes that just don't add anything to the movie. There's, there's lots of scenes that you could cut. It, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And even the scenes that are there. That, I mean, there's a long one that you're going to praise in a minute, but that's neither here nor there. We have to work hard. We try to not just be negative Nellies on this show. So we mentioned that there's a kaiju style fight. What does that mean? This is a movie that's handheld shot on the streets of LA. Pretty realistic. Except all of a sudden when the- Did you just call this movie pretty realistic? Reality based? <laughs> I don't know. It's not- There's like, no I guess like the monsters. Yeah, the physics. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's nothing supernatural in this movie, except unless you count Chef Chelios surviving helicopter falls. There's nothing overtly supernatural until Chelios tracks down Vang Finally, they have a big fight, but it gets surreal there. It's yeah. not them. It's giant versions of them with big... Like giant suits of them. Yeah, yeah, suits with big rubber faces, like exaggerated caricature faces. Here's what I think happened. Okay. Chev like absorbs all the power that's in this electrical plant. Okay. 
okay, become yeah, this right. big kaiju monster. I think his whole body just was incinerated in a second, and this is his like fevered death dream. Oh yeah, it's like <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. Yes, it's your <laughs> Top Gun Maverick theory, but applied to another movie, and it happens way later in the movie. Yeah, it doesn't happen at the beginning, but yes, before the kaiju fight breaks out, he does fall into a giant high voltage thing, and they're in this yard that's just full of transformers. And yeah, then they have this like slow motion corny fight, and it's silly, but I'm like, okay, this is actually interesting. Maybe these filmmakers could have indulged their silly side more instead of just trying to be naughty and titillating and right. shocking. The scene is a welcome respite from the juvenile humor, even though it is juvenile because it's like completely silly, but in yeah. a fun way, as opposed to a mean-spirited way, which the rest of the movie has been. Exactly. And then in a mean-spirited way, there's a scene that comes up, is it before or after that? I can't remember where it takes place. It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't really matter. I couldn't see Because it's a complete side story. There's a gunfight going on and we cut to a therapist's office where Glenn Howerton, who was a minor character in the first movie, I think he was a nurse mm-hmm. or an orderly at a hospital, is going to therapy to try to get over his PTSD from his near-death experience in the first one. His therapist is the horniest woman that has ever lived. She is, for some reason, <laughs> just chomping at the bit to... I mean, Glenn Howerton's a handsome man, but why is she a medical professional? Why but is she's she so not, fucking yeah, horny? She's being horny. She's suggesting him to do all these sexual things, but not really with her so much. Like, it doesn't culminate in her coming on to him, it just culminates in her sort of stirring his loins with her sexual suggestions. And in fact, her mode of sexual suggestion therapy works. It cures him of his PTSD. He stands up and goes, I'm over it. And then a stray bullet pierces his brain, splatters his blood on the wall. And also, we should note though, the therapist isn't just some actor. It's Lauren Holly. Oh, I didn't recognize her. (laughs) Yeah, she looks great. But yeah, that's Lauren Holly, a very prominent actor who's been around since the 80s and is still acting today, I believe. Yeah, she's still working. God. Why did she take this role? I have no idea. Another Uh, person, yeah, who lowered themselves into this movie. Like Glenn Howerton, I can kind of see. He seems like a bit of a bro. Like I could see him broing down with these guys. Yes, but I mean, actually having him in there is a mistake because anybody who knows Always Sunny will go, oh, that's how you do it when you want to make challenging, risque humor that pushes boundaries that can make you uncomfortable. But is actually smart and funny. That guy has done it for years and years and these guys couldn't pull it off. So it makes them look bad to remind you of that. Yeah, that's a good note. And his character getting shit, like this is like a three minute scene, I think that could have just been completely cut from the movie and nothing would have mattered. But it is one of the few scenes that actually had a narrative goal. Yeah, it had irony. It started out with a character who was like, I am traumatized by gun violence. I'm desperate to get over this and live my life. By the end of the scene, he's gotten over it. And then irony strikes, he's killed by a bullet. It's like a great little short story. And it's the most story anywhere in the whole. The film has no other moments of meaning like that anywhere. Should you take us home to the final third of the movie, which is essentially one long gunfight, but that's always yeah. the movie, I guess. Well, so. let me put these jumper cables on my nipples. And just oh. Glad you still have them. You haven't cut them off yet. Here we go. While unconscious, Chev relives a moment from his past where, as a troubled child, he appeared on a British daytime TV talk show. Meanwhile, Chico and his fellow thugs are taking Chelios to the Catalina Island lair of Mexican mob boss Jesus El Oron Verona, played by Clifton Collins Jr. It turns out that El Oron is the brother of two guys Chelios tried to kill in the previous movie. One of them being Ricky Verona, the guy who we saw falling out of the helicopter with Chev. Ricky also survived that fall, except now he's just a disembodied head in a tank looking on as his brother starts to torture Chelios. But just then, Chev's allies Rhea and Venus arrive with some of their friends and a massive final battle ensues. Chelios manages to dispatch all of his enemies, but he's consumed in flames as the fight and the movie come to an end. However, in the closing credits, we can see that Doc has recovered Chelios' heart from Pundong, 
and he retransplants it back into Chev's badly burned body, leaving open the possibility of a subsequent movie. Yeah. The, <laughs> so This is one of those bummers, man. We're sighing yeah. throughout the episode. It's not even as fun to hate on as like the Boondock Saints was. But no. um, So another, they crammed all their fun stylistic choices into a 20 minute stretch in the middle of the movie because not too long after the big kaiju fight, we get the talk show yeah. sequence, which is you're doing two kind of heightened reality bits too close to each other. You got to spread those out more. I think. So that was clearly a dream sequence because we saw Chev is knocked on the head with a pipe. And then this seems to be what he's experiencing while he's passed out. But it's played realistically enough that I believed that was canon in Chev's actual life. Did you take it to be something his mind dreamed up as a fiction? I thought that like the situations and the circumstances he was describing were canon, but not necessarily the going on the talk show bit. Okay. If that makes sense? Sure. That's a cool way to, that's kind of to what spin I, it. how I read it. That like he was, that's how he was coping with his childhood was to imagine it in that context. Okay. I like that. That gives it a little more meaning than I, I had just taken it as a strictly literal thing. It's just like, remember that time when you went on a talk show? Cause you were a fucked up little kid. I don't That's know, man. I, I might be giving them too much credit. It's probably <laughs> is just that with his mom, Ginger Spice. Yeah. His mom is Jerry Hollowell, which is another stunt casting, but she has so few lines and there just kind of wasn't anything. There's no joy to get out of her being on there. Yeah. It's a waste. And the whole scene is a waste. Like we said, there's fat in this movie cause it's just a time killer. Like, Oh, what do we do while he's unconscious? Well, let's show some history, but it doesn't tie into anything. It doesn't tell you anything that comes to fruition. There's nothing in his past that he's now facing. It's just like he was always a fucked up guy who stole shit. And- always a thrill seeker. Yeah. Like yeah. That, that's what you get. Yeah. I think we could have guessed that based on his yeah. current predicament and the relationships he has with people. But usually like when you do a movie like this and you take the time to do a flashback scene, you tie it into something like what he always wanted was a skateboard. And then on the final scene, he grabs the skateboard from the villain and beats him to death with it or something like you create something so that you go, oh, there's meaning, there's connection, there's things that are coming full circle. Some thematic tie. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing here. There's nothing. They just said, fuck that. You don't need that. any of that. It's funny. Jerry Hallowell's a fine actor. I have no problem with her, but she's just not used effectively in this. No. I didn't even know it was her at first. I yeah, I didn't either. Second rewatch. I thought she resembles Amy Smart a little bit and like the way they've done her up. And I thought maybe that was trying to draw a parallel. Yeah. Which is not like, that's not the most imaginative take. Oh, he's dating someone who reminds him of his mom. No, but like how much better would this movie have been if there was some tie-in, like some behavior that his mom did that we see in Eve's character and how those both had an effect on him, but that's just a dream of ours. <laughs> he attempted exactly zero of that angle. They'll all disappear like tears in the rain. So then once he wakes up, he's at the compound in Catalina. We find out Ricky Verona is ahead in a tank, which is fine, I guess, but like it's so lo-fi, it's almost charming. Like you said, maybe this is the silliness again, creeping a little bit more into this third act where like it's a very rubber looking dummy head in a tank. The eyes swivel back and forth. All he can say is Chalios and fuck you at some point. I think he manages. Fuck you, Chelios is the catchphrase of the movie and they run that into the ground pretty hard. But it just, it ends up in a gunfight that they didn't really have the budget for or the choreography for. It's not really interesting to watch. It goes on for quite a while, but it's just people like ducking behind shit, shooting, stabbing. Yeah. Like it gets monotonous after a while. And more naked female bodies being riddled with bullet holes, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of scantily clad women at the pool that end up catching a bullet just for the reason that they're there. It's just when the movie is one long gunfight, to try to cap it off with a big gunfight is monotony. It's just boring. It doesn't feel like a shift. It doesn't feel like the stakes are higher or it's heightened compared to the earlier parts of the movie. It's just more the same. And I guess they tried to make it a giant battle royale because Chev has three factions or one of the factions is him, but then there's Venus's people and there's Rhea and her people. But we didn't really get to know any of those people. So it's just like different groups of people just chaotically clashing. We're not attached to any of these groups. They all got one or two scenes throughout the movie so that they could justify putting them in the last shot. But 
Chev survives another day to maybe make a crank three sometime. Yeah. Yeah. So it is pretty nihilistic in the end because the character during the course of the movie doesn't win. If you think that his goal was to get his heart back, he doesn't. If you think that his goal was to get revenge on some mob bosses, I guess he does, but he dies in the process. He burns up and he kind of likes it that way because he does one of your favorite things to close the movie. Yeah. He flips off the camera and uh, I've long held that dudes who are like over the age of, I said 30, but I'll switch it to 25 and still like flip off the camera frequently. Actually, I was reading what I said in a tweet and it was presciently enough, still have Boondock Saints posters hanging on their wall, but also like they're not allowed to see their kids except on the weekends once in a while. Yeah. That's big Chev Chelios energy. It was Chev giving us the finger. It was the filmmakers just like, in case you didn't know, this is the kind of shit bags we are who flip off the camera when anyone tries to take a picture of me. I'm like, fuck you. Two middle fingers up. That's like fucking, even Eminem grew out of that shit. Right. Like he's too old to do that. was like his signature style. He grew out of it. Like Fred, is Fred Durst even still? Fred Durst might still do it. <laughs> he might Who still do it. He's trapped. He didn't quite break like, Is that the company you want to keep? You <laughs> and Fred Durst just flipping off the camera? Apparently it is. They closed the movie with it. Good for them. Actually, in a fun tidbit, Fred Durst has directed a better movie than Neville Dean or Taylor ever has. Oh no. Seriously? Yeah. He's a, yeah, he's a director now. He directed like an ice cube. Oh, hold on. It wasn't good, but it was workmanlike in a good way. Like it was fine. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm trying to Google <laughs> and talk, but no, he's not a good director, but he is a director. He has one movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a total disaster, but okay. Yeah, The Long Shots and The Education of Charlie Banks. He directed okay. two movies that are not like disasters. The Education of Charlie Banks is an early Jesse Eisenberg performance. Interesting. You know? Didn't know that yeah. one. Sebastian Stan, is it? Like, it's got a r- real cast. And then The Long Shots was like a feel-good ragtag football team movie okay. where Ice Cube's the coach. And it was fine. So maybe they wish they were in the same company as Fred Durst. <laughs> yeah, hence the middle finger. So that's Crank High Vaulted. Should we talk a little bit about where uh, Neville Dean and Taylor went following this? Did they survive it? Did they live? to see another day? (laughs) They did. So this was only the second movie they ever co-directed after the first crank, obviously. They also wrote and produced a 2008 crime horror movie called Pathology, which doesn't sound terrible. I might want to check that out one day. Okay. They followed this up with the Gerard Butler turd gamer, just a real piece of shit movie. I've heard tell of that one. They were supposed to direct Jonah Hex, the Josh Brolin DC Comics debacle future episode, Jonah Hex. Stay tuned for that one. Okay. But they left over creative differences with the studio. They were still credited as writers on it though. Not a great track record so far. And then their last directorial effort as a team was 2011's Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which is bad. Probably it's bad in a different way than the first Ghost Rider. It takes itself less seriously as you would expect from a Neville Dean and Taylor movie, but it okay. uh, still sucks. That was a big miscast for Nick Cage being Ghost Rider. He just could not play that character at all. I was a Ghost Rider fan of the comics back in the day. That was one that I had a bunch of issues and dug that character. And somehow the reputations of these movies have preceded them well enough that I have avoided watching any of it. They even got Idris Elba to be in those turds. I don't know how. Oh, shit. So since they split up, Neville Dean has directed two movies, The Vatican Tapes and Panama. He also wrote a third movie, Officer Down, but it's down like a name, D-O-W-N-E. Oh. <laughs> a little twist. Um, he did a twist on it. None of these movies are any good, but Officer Down is notable because it was directed by Sean Crane, better known as Clown, one of the percussionists from Slipknot, the guy who hits like a keg with a stick. Whoa, weird. Yeah, yeah. Weird little connection there. I don't mean to besmirch Slipknot. I was a big Slipknot fan when they were first coming out. I don't hate their music or anything, but it is funny how many guys they have that just hit kegs with sticks. I didn't even know that about the band. I don't know much about them, but there's definitely, Nine a, there's definitely a contemporary metal connection between these filmmakers in the rock world. Yeah, definitely. But I could see like butt rock more than like okay. Slipknot. I could see like saliva, theory of a dead man type garbage. Sure. I know what you mean. Only because you've educated me to a certain right. extent about butt rock. I fucking hate butt rock. So then Brian Taylor worked on sci-fi series Happy with an exclamation point at the end as a director and writer. And then he wrote and directed a movie that's considered
considered kind of a cult classic. It's a Nick Cage and Selma Blair movie from 2017 called Mom and Dad. Okay. I remember hearing about it, but I never saw it. I've always meant to check it out and I always forget it exists, but maybe I will give it a look now. So for me, happy on his resume is digging him out of the gutter and, and possibly redeeming him in some way. Did you watch any of Happy? No, I never even heard of it. You think it's pretty oh, good? It's really good. I only watched the first season, but if you like Violent Night, Happy is Christmas oriented about a tough guy. This time it's Chris Maloney instead of David Harbour, but they occupy a certain similar space in the world of early funny actors. Really good. Yeah. Big recommend. I don't know how much this guy had to do with its success or its quality, but that first season of Happy kicked ass. I know Grant Morrison wrote the comic it's based on, but he's credited as the creator. I think he was a driving creative force behind it. So, And then Mom and Dad being a bit of a like a cult classic makes me think that maybe Taylor's kind of the talented one out of the two. Could be. Could be. There was a disparity and Neville Dean was dragging down Taylor, allegedly. 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 They have discussed collaborating in the future. There's no acrimony as far as I could tell between them. Some of the projects they've teased are a third crank movie, which they say their studios have profitability concerns for obvious reasons. And uh, also they want to remake The Warriors. I think the Warriors could be remade, and I think that could be good, but I feel like they're a little too... Like, the Warriors is kind of a cartoonish premise, so I think you almost need to ground it more than lean into the cartooniness. Yeah, their version of the Warriors, I could see you going that direction with it, but that wouldn't be the one that I would hope to see. I'm looking for, like, a Matt Reeves Warriors that's, like, really oh. dark and spooky. I could see that. No, I feel like I gotta throw out somebody. That just came to me. I usually don't have good names to drop from loving the Batman so much that image came to mind. I would say let Andrew Dominic take a shot at the Warriors, but I don't know if I'll ever be allowed to make another movie again after Blonde that came and went like a wet fart. People did not like that movie. I never watched it. Oh yeah, I didn't either. But like Killing Them Softly and The Assassination of Jesse James makes me think he could pull off a Warriors remake pretty well. Okay. I have seen The Assassination of Jesse James and that's, I think, maybe the only thing I know of his work, but... Uh... Oh, you should check out Killing Them Softly. You'd probably like it. Okay. Really good movie that is about Brad Pitt playing a hitman, but is really about like capitalism. That's interesting. Mm, I like that. Yeah, it's good. Like he clearly was sniffing his own farts a little bit after The Assassination of Jesse James getting so much praise. So there's a little bit of that, but it's still really well made and a really good Gandolfini performance in it, one of his final ones. Oh man. Yeah. I'm going to put that on my list. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the actors and where they went after this. As I was saying, between the first crank and this movie, Statham was in a bit of a slump. The movies he'd made in those three years were War, The Bank Job, In the Name of the King, Death Race, and Transporter 3. Only The Bank Job and Transporter 3 were profitable and The Bank Job was barely profitable. But in 2010, he would join the Expendables franchise. He would start the mechanic franchise, which I forgot that there was another movie, like The Job the with Jason Statham, yeah. The Transporter, <laughs> yeah. The Mechanic. Like, how many of these do we need? Which I guess they have at least two of them. There might be three Mechanic movies. I can't remember. Who gives a shit? These movies are all the same. And then he would join the Fast and Furious franchise with the sixth movie and became a mainstay, getting his own spinoff with The Rock, Hobbs and Shaw. And he was also in The Meg, will be in the upcoming Meg sequel, which I hope they're making rated R. And I think they are because of who they got to direct it. I think, isn't Ben Wheatley directing that? Oh, I don't know. I, don't know I think Ben, Wheat ben Wheatley's the guy who made High Rise, Kill List, Free Fire, and In the Earth. So that could be like a really fun, bloody killer shark movie if they let him run wild with it. I fucking hated the first one for the record, but I have some hope for the second one if Ben Wheatley's attached to it. A little bit of hope. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like Statham went through waves in his career, but he somehow made that Transporter franchise work. And that seems like even though he was striking out with some of those other things, that alone made him a guy that you could at least be tempted to pay to try to recreate that kind of success. Let's do a new right. character, 
a new franchise we can make sequels out of. And it's clear that's what people were trying to do. And sometimes it didn't work. And then it, it worked again. Yeah. He was definitely a name at this point, but he wasn't like a sure thing. He wasn't the marquee name he is today, yeah. but he was definitely a commodity. And I like Statham. I think he's good at what he does. He might be a little bit one note, but he was really funny in Spy. Okay. I don't know if you ever checked out Spy, the Melissa McCarthy movie. I never did. I got to look him up in that. He has a lot of charm. And I guess a sign of his natural charm is that we didn't really attack him for this movie. We attacked this movie for a lot of shit. And we kind of giving Statham a pass is like, that's just Statham. He just does movies and like he's not right. responsible for the content. He's just responsible for kicking guys and shooting them. I think of him a bit like Nick Cage to bring up Nick Cage again mm. in that sense where you don't really blame him because a movie's bad. Just, yeah. He gets a pass. Amy Smart has stayed busy since this movie. Not necessarily in the most prestigious stuff, but hey, work is work. She's staying in the industry. Her name's out there. She released five movies in 2014, three in 2018, but like none of them were stuff you would have seen in the theater, mostly like okay. direct to streaming, direct to DVD. Recently, she's been in 13 Minutes and Tyson's Run and is currently starring in Stargirl as Barbara Whitmore, which is one of those DC shows that I've not oh, checked out. There yeah. seems to be a bunch of those that I'm just not familiar with that they have a fan base. I know people like them. I should check out some of them, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Is she the mom in the Stargirl show? Seems like- I couldn't the, tell you. I don't know who the characters are. I don't know who Barbara Whitmore is. It says high school student Courtney Whitmore inspires an unlikely group of young heroes to stop the villain. So uh, like I know Amy Smart is the age to have a high school age daughter, but it just blows my mind that she's playing a mom. You know, I remember her from Varsity Blues and Road Trip, all that stuff. We're getting old. Yeah. Efren Ramirez, he also still acts. He did a voice in Lightyear this year, which also stay tuned for Lightyear. We're gonna have to cover that one day. That was a big flop. He's popped up in a lot of like single episodes of shows. He's not a regular on any shows, but he's uh, he gets work. I'll do an episode here and there of stuff. And uh, he's also a pretty in-demand DJ. Well, that's a nice thing to be. Is it? Who wouldn't take that as a side gig? I'm also an in-demand DJ in the tri-state area. That's fun. Which state's in the tri-state area? (laughs) Just New Jersey. That's the only one. Sorry. Clifton Collins, he's great. He was great on Westworld. One of the bright spots of Westworld for me. Okay. I knew I'd seen him somewhere lately. I watched a little bit of that show. The first season I still maintain was pretty good, even though it was just confusing for the sake of being confusing. But his character is great in that. And he had a recurring role on Ballers. We saw him in the stand most recently. He had he was on an episode or two of that. Okay. And he's in like a million movies every year. He, he's constantly working, but he's not just taking like parts. He's in some bigger movies. He was in Honey Boy, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, After Yang and Nightmare Alley. So he's these are big directors yeah. putting him in like relatively small roles, but he's still working with prestigious names. He's got that quality to him. He's like a guy that you want to have playing a key little character part. Yeah. I'm always happy to see Clifton Collins pop up and stuff. He rules. And he does his best with Crank. I fucking hate this movie. Yeah. I don't like it at all. I'm not a fan. No, like if it hadn't taken certain turns, it would have been able to pull off being like an enjoyable thing. Like if it didn't offend you, you could go, okay, this was dumb. It didn't have a story, but it was like some silly fun action. But then it just seems to go out of its way to keep crossing a line that you're like, no, fuck you, movie. I don't like you. Well said, Ian. Was that your final thought? (laughs) That's my final thought, except for this, where I'm flipping off the fucking camera. Oh, he's doing it. What a badass. (laughs) So cool. I can see your Fight Club poster from here. Hell yeah. No, I hate this movie. And that's all. Do you know what we're doing next week? Have you looked at the schedule? I didn't. I kept it a fun surprise. I like this part of the show where you drop one on me. Yeah, this is fun. I'm enjoying it too. We're doing one of my faves, a movie that you actually told me you went back and 
and watched pretty recently. Oh. Uh, unbeknowing to you that we were going to be covering it real soon. Yes. That's just how clueless I am. I sometimes accidentally watch stuff that I will need that to watch for the podcast. Later. Question, are you going to watch it twice now this week? Um, you just watched yeah, it. Yeah. I didn't get through it. So I've got to, oh. I'm going to do at least a watch and a half this week. We'll see how it goes. We're doing William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Yes. From 1977. Kind of a unfairly maligned movie. It is a remake of The Wages of Fear, starring Roy Scheider, hot off the trail of Jaws. And it's just a real tense little thriller about arms dealers in South America. It's cool. Oh, I guess they're not really arms dealers. They're transporting nitroglycerine, but that's a, that's a weapon. So Yeah. It's got a lot of style. This is a movie I've heard about and intended to watch for like decades because everyone who knows it talks about it like, oh, this is so badass. You got to see Sorcerer. And now I'm getting to really do it. And it's our second Friedkin movie. We covered Blue Chips for March Madness last year. A really unlikely Friedkin movie. And we didn't form a great impression of the man at the time. So we're going to see how that plays out as we step back in time earlier in his career. Now, as much as my nostalgia glasses may let me enjoy Blue Chips as an adult, the stories about Friedkin from the set were not great. I'm interested to see what comes up when I research Sorcerer because it's a movie that's been much discussed over the yes. years. It was one of those like Heaven's Gate type movies that was just toxic by the time it was released and was okay. a bomb because the press around it was so negative and all the stories from the set were so negative and it was a nightmare to film and all that. Luckily for us, that means that there's a lot of content out there about it. That's always a nice little angle to have. going to be a fun one. Looking forward to it. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Helps new listeners find us and that's always good. Please. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. We'll be sending out silly little tweets on there, teasing the next week's movie. And you can reply to our tweets, ask us questions, DM us, whatever you want to do. You can also email us, blastzonepod at gmail.com. Any questions, concerns, feedback, movie suggestions. And uh, we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.